In this series on 2 Corinthians, in which we are taking this incredible deep dive into the mind of the Spirit, working its way through Paul and his associates, uh, and the contrast between the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit in Paul and his associates, and the ministry of the letter of the law through the super-apostles, Paul's opponents at Corinth. Uh, so there are these two ministries occurring at the same time, and I've told you that before. Uh, and it's very important to you to understand this, because the what we understand as ministry today in most American churches, quite frankly, has far more in common with the ministry of the letter uh, of Paul's opponents than with Paul in his ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that flippantly. That is a, a statement that I make as a result of doing this in-depth exegesis and study of this uh, incredible second letter to the Corinthians. And so we want to be mindful of these things. We want to be discerning of what is true apostolic ministry and what is some kind of phony counterfeit because Quite frankly, the world is filled right now with charlatans and peddlers and men and women who distort the Word of God for their own personal gain and profit. And, and the, the letter of 2 Corinthians reveals to us that none of this is new. It was going on during the time of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. In fact, his chief opponents and for lack of a better word, his chief co competitors, his chief competition for the affections of the Corinthian Christians are these super apostles. And so we are engaged in this study, and as we do, I am doing a lot of work behind the scenes here. And from time to time, I want to just break out and just share with you uh, a very important principle that we're discovering. And even though I have yet to fully um, develop it and fully be able to um, uh, articulate it, you can get it. You can get it even in its undeveloped sense. Uh, you can understand the principle enough that I really want you, I'm anxious for you, to benefit from it sooner than later. So um, today I want to talk with you about overcoming religious triumphalism, which is so um, characteristic of much of American Christianity, and instead embracing the cross. Embracing the cross. Now, this should not come as a, a great surprise to you if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, because Paul says in his letter there that he wanted to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Uh, so for the message of the cross, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So Paul was insistent that his message not go drifting off into worldly wisdom or some kind of uh, competition between him and the false apostles, 
but that he be focused and not know anything among these people except Christ and him crucified. So it is a very important study that we're doing here. And today I want to introduce you to one Greek word that has for hundreds of years created a problem in our self-understanding as Christians and certainly in the self-understanding of our leaders and how it is we are to view our very salvation as we go out into the world. I've said before that if we're going to be good New Covenant evangelists, and every Christian is an evangelist to some degree, <clears throat> we have to be prepared to really believe that we have good news, that we're not just sharing kind of good news or some kind of lukewarm good news. But the good news that's expressed through Paul and his ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit is good news beyond our wildest imagination because it speaks to us and not only to reaching a point of reconciliation with God the Father through by grace, through faith in Jesus, but also union with Jesus Christ so that we are in a state of ever-increasing uh, conformity to Christ on a very dynamic and experiential manner. Now, somebody might accuse me of, of being triumphant on that point, and so I want to be careful to emphasize that the fullness of the gospel and the good news of the gospel is not a triumphant status. It is simply the good news. Religious triumphalism has everything to do with, and I hesitate to use this phrase because I don't want to um, intimidate you, but it is has everything to do with an over-realized eschatology. As you know, we are in a now and not yet state as Christians. Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God with his coming. The new creation began with his uh, resurrection. And uh, the new covenant, which was consecrated at the cross by his, uh, by his blood, was affirmed and empowered and poured out on us at, by the Spirit at Pentecost. And so uh, the salvation that was awaited at the end of human history, or the judgment for that matter, Jesus inaugurated with his first coming. So we're in this now and not yet state. But there are those who today who will emphasize an over-realized eschatology as if there's nothing more to come that we got it all. Now we are rich. Now we are wealthy. Now there's nothing more yet to come, and so on and so on. That's religious triumphalism. That somehow it, the gospel is all about me all the time and about my health and my wealth and my prosperity and even seeing me as being the center of the work of God as opposed to Christ. So this is a very nuanced thing and I, and I want to introduce this to you carefully and slowly so that you can be careful to put on a new pair of glasses and enjoy the benefit of what the scriptures actually teach 
about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to uh, live the Christian life in this uh, present age while we're awaiting the future age to be fully realized at, at Christ's return. So, okay, with that said, let me, let me just point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading at verse 12 uh, down through verse 15, just, just to maintain the context here. Um, beginning with verse 12, we read, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. End quote. We'll stop there. I want to focus on this first verse, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So, I want you to stay with me. I'm just, my, this guy might get a little technical, but I'll, I'm going to try to keep, it, uh, keep this hay down where we can all eat it. <laughs> As the old farmer said, uh, bring that hay down from the barn where we can feed it. It can do some good. And that's what I want for you here. So I'm not trying to impress you with technicalities, but we have to do it a look, a few of them. We have to look at closely at a few Greek words here to be able to feather out what this is, what Paul is really saying. So now when I was in Bible college, one of my professors told us, quote, the first rule of context is that context rules, end quote. That's one of the most important things I ever heard in Bible college or seminary later. And he was absolutely correct. So ever since, I have been extremely uncomfortable with reading any passage or verse apart from its overall context. And I must say, I know I have been spared many dangers, toils, and snares by always insisting on context. There's a lot of superficial Christianity in the world, and especially in America. There's almost like two versions of Christianity. There's this superficial shallow Christianity that's happening on a cultural level. And then there's biblical Christianity that's happening uh, as we continue to dive into the text and follow the guidance and listen for the Spirit in the text and are, find ourselves being transformed as we do that. Uh, and so let me tell you, regarding our subject text here, that we're going to have to pause and examine carefully the historic and grammatical context of one word, the understanding of which, however, this will stay with me, can make all the difference in how we approach the Christian life. So, 
Let me get settled here. So right out of the gate in our text, our context presents us with this very important key word that is the Greek word threemboya. Threemboya. <laughs> Hopefully we won't have to pronounce that too often. Threemboya. It's a verb in verse 14. This word is translated with many words, as is often, because the Greek language is very precise, and we can't always easily transfer and translate word for word because it's so precise, and our English is not quite as precise, so we have to use several words to translate it. But that said, this one word, this one Greek word, is, can be translated to lead in triumph. And then we have to back up and look at the overall historic use of that word. So this is a very delicate point. And be, stay with me, because where we're going with this, will, I'm, certainly, I'm certain will bless you as you better understand what it means to be in Christ in this present age. So, in the King James Version, the old authorized version, this one Greek word that I pronounced earlier has been translated as, quote, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. The New American Standard translates, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And, and that's better. But if we follow the King James, then Paul is saying that the triumph is his, though, of course, in Christ. So Paul is the triumphant one. The question we have to ask then, but does God always cause us to triumph in Christ? Is that how we should read that? That would mean Paul is thanking God for making him triumph in Christ. And if we follow the New King James Version, or the New American Standard even, reading as nearly as many have for centuries, certainly the King James Version, one must admit that it is appealing to consider that we, like Paul, are being displayed as triumph, portrayed as triumphant in Christ, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. That has been the favorite rendering for centuries. And many commentators today will fall back on that. And much of Western Christianity, especially in America, would be very much at home with a triumphalist faith. And so, it seems straightforward enough. Except that it's not. Scott Haffeman, uh, in his dissertation on this, points out that even John Calvin could not imagine, quote, for theological reasons, that Paul means something different from the common meaning of the phrase. And so Calvin also interpreted this Greek verb to mean to cause to triumph, that God causes you and I to triumph. Now you can see already, this is very appealing to us as Americans. It's very appealing to us as human beings. We like the thought that God causes us to triumph. So in this view, God is the cause of Paul's triumphant life. It is Paul who is triumphant. 
But, like with Calvin and any others, is it proper to impose our theology upon our text? Is it proper to impose what we want it to say? And if not, there's a problem. Now, I'm going to spare you a lot of detail here, but I'm, I want to give you enough to help you understand the point. The ancient Greek lexicon does not allow for such a translation as is found in the King James. For the word meaning to lead in triumph was used only to describe the Roman triumphal procession in which to be led in triumph didn't mean that you were the triumphant one, but that you were the captive of the one leading. For example, the NIV 2011 therefore translates the verb as, quote, leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, if you're a King James advocate, or even a King James only, I know I've already rattled your cage, and you're probably angry with me, and you've already already stopped listening. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. This is more important than just a translation. Getting the meaning of the Greek grammar correct is absolutely, if we're going to understand the mind of Paul when he wrote it, we're going to have to under, do that. So even if you prefer the King James Version, which I truly love, I hope you will understand that there is no perfect English translation. That's why it's so good that we have several translations that we can refer to. So the NIV translates this verb properly, leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. It is Christ who has triumphed. More particularly, it is God who has triumphed over his enemies in Christ. Now, the ESV also translates more accurately, quote, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. But the imagery here is of a Roman triumphal procession in which the emperor or the general would be the triumphant one. He will have gone out of Rome. He will have encountered and overcome and subdued and conquered his enemies. And now is coming back into Rome with the cheers of the crowds, moving his procession down the road with his garlands on and the, and the, the aroma of incense being burned, leading, however, in front of him in triumphal procession. He is the triumphant one, and the, those being led are his captives, those whom he has just conquered. They are in chains and they are being led in this triumphant procession. Now stick with me, because there's a beautiful ending to all this. So far from being triumphant, when properly understood, it is the conquered that are led in triumph. Commentator Craig Keener notes, quote, Roman conquerors would lead their shamed captives in a triumphal procession. In this period, only the emperor was allowed to lead triumphs. Christ had triumphed and now led believers 
in him as captives. That's an image that's sim similar, says Keener, Keener, to that of being Christ's servants. We are, Paul, we are Christ's captives. Paul is referring here not to his own personal triumph, but to Christ's triumph. Now that should help you if you're a Christ-centered person, you should be much more comfortable with that. Christ is the triumphant one. God in Christ is the triumphant one. And Paul has been taken captive by God in Christ. So Paul is not saying that he is the triumphant one. Rather, he is Christ's captive. It is not Paul, therefore, but God in Christ who is the triumphant one. And this interpretation also fits much better with the entire context of 2 Corinthians in which Paul continually boasts in his weaknesses and God's power displayed through those weaknesses. So Scott Haffeman, in his dissertation on this passage, also writes that by the 19th century, this attempt to understand the verb to lead in triumph uh, as Calvin did, was recognized and pronounced on high authority to be philologically impossible. So this means that while Calvin and nearly all other commentators since, including the revered King James Version, even some to the say the NSAB as well, translators are inaccurate on this point. Now that's not shocking. I mean, every... Every translation has some inaccuracies that could be redone. We can still trust it to be the, the true word of God in English. Furnish, the uh, commentator uh, Victor Furnish, affirms this conclusion, writing, quote, King James Version's causes us the triumph, quote, unquote, has no lexical support. So this is what happens when we allow our predetermined theology to determine the interpretation as opposed to following the biblical text where it leads. Even if it challenges our theology, which we want it to do, beloved, we want to take our Bible study and our exegesis seriously, and we want to be prepared to not only have our person, our, our character, our, our way of thinking, our way of living challenged, but to have even our, our favorite theology challenged if necessary. So the better reading, therefore, is that of Paul having been subdued by the conquering Christ and led as his captive, as is portrayed in the NIV translation. So, but listen to this carefully now. I'm coming to a point. Stay with me. <laughs> Affelman is also careful to note, quote, Paul's conception of, quote, all Christians as enemies before their reconciliation by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And Paul's ability to picture those Jews who are rejecting the gospel as enemies of God, Romans 11.28, and his judgment that those who reject his example in gospel live as enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.8. So it seems very natural to find this same predicate, Haffelman goes on to say, applied by Paul, by implication to himself, as he was prior to his Damascus Road experience. 
It was a conquered enemy then that Paul, as a slave of Christ, was now. To take the image in its most specific meaning, being, being led by God to death in order that he might display or reveal the majesty, power, and glory of his conqueror. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians is not to, to glory in his own triumphant state, spiritual state, but to always point back to God as the conqueror in and through Christ. And Jesus Christ as the one who has taken him captive. The triumphal procession that Paul speaks of then in verse 14 is God's procession, with Paul having been taken a captive. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. So, what we're learning here and what's important to you as you go throughout your Christian life that the old man died with Christ at the cross. God, we were once God's enemies. We were in league with those powers and authorities in the spiritual realm that opposed the knowledge of God in the earth. But Colossians 2.15 is the only other place, by the way, where this Greek verb is used reads that Christ at his cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, let me cut to the chase here. What Paul is speaking of here is that he and his associates, and by extension you and I today, were all once God's enemies and that God has triumphed in Christ, not only to subdue and disarm and put on as a public spectacle those spiritual authorities and powers that oppose the knowledge of him in the world, but we, too, who were in league once with those spiritual forces. Now, this should not come as any surprise to us either. I mean, after all... At Ephesians 2.1, Paul says quite clearly, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of great, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. So rather Paul, is in, as, as rather than being triumphant, he is presenting you and I, in, in, as he did in this text, you and I, are former enemies of God, whom he has conquered through the cross, and he has subdued through the resurrection and through the outpouring of the Spirit, and by regeneration, then, we are taken captive, and we are in triumphant procession. Now, 
the Roman triumphal procession of the Roman emperor or general used to lead his captives in chains while the crowds jeered and spit and threw things at them. And, and at the end of the procession, most often those, those people, those captives were met with shame and execution, public execution. And that's where we were headed when Christ died for us. So today, what differs between this triumphal procession of Christ and the triumphal procession of the Roman emperor is that Christ himself, while he has conquered us and he has triumphed in his cross by disarming the spiritual forces of darkness and conquering us as his enemies through regeneration and uh, redemption, the salvation that he gives us by grace through faith, so that now we, we are in him. And at the end of this procession, where execution and shame awaited, typically, what we experience at the end of this procession now is newness of life. We are in a procession. God is putting us on display in this present age as his conquered slaves, but not with the outcome of execution and shame, but with the outcome of redemption, newness of life. And beyond that, even adoption into his household. It would have been unthinkable. It would have never passed through the thought of a Roman emperor or a Roman general to give his captives a reprieve at the end of the procession, let alone give them a new life that was his own life, and to have himself step in and take the execution so that his captives could have that new life and be an heirs of his whole empire. But that's what God has done for you and I. When we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So God is the conqueror. He has triumphed through his son who has triumphed and overcome and disarmed the spiritual forces of this present evil age to which we were uh, allied. And by his grace alone, he has taken us captives and puts us on display to the world as his captives, those who belong to him now, not to the world. We are his we no longer have anything of our own. We are his fully and totally. But at the end of the procession, when Christ returns, we'll be fully realize our adoption as children of God. Awaiting us is not execution or condemnation. Awaiting us is the full redemption of our bodies and eternal life that is yet to be fully realized 
but is even now at work in us. So this continues Paul's theme from his letter to these same Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Instead of shame and execution, we have been conquered in order to be given newness of life and adoption into the household of the triumphant one in the Son. And it is this great truth for which we are on display to the world. We are not the triumphant one. We are not triumphing as so many do in, in the charismatic world today and other circles. As if the gospel was all about us. We have been shown great mercy. We are not the triumphant ones. God is the triumphant one. Christ is the triumphant one. And in him we have received mercy. For he himself took our shame and took our execution so that when the end of the procession comes, we experience mercy and new life. This is in keeping, and I'll close with this. This is in keeping with Second Corinthians as an overall letter, but particularly in Second Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> We read this, beginning with verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we as captives to Christ now are therefore his ambassadors, it says in verse 20. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul says, beginning in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, as God's co-workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You have been conquered. You have been taken captive. But not for shame and execution. For Christ has taken that from you, for you, so that you might have his life in you and be adopted into the conquering God's household forever. This is a beautiful thing we just have heard. It's a, it's a, a new way of looking at things. We don't belong to ourselves. 
We belong to him who has conquered us so that we might have new life. Amen.